2: right-wing extremism as white, young, angry men who are unemployed, frankly, is not supported by data.
0: You can't pretend that this stuff is just shitposting when somebody goes out and shoots 50 people and then fills their justification for doing it with that exact same language.
2: They're beginning to feel that there's this existential threat against them, that there's this great being conspiracy and that the entire world order is working to erase them and their ethnic identity. When you're already disestablishment and you're already pretty conspiratorial, you don't really need much evidence to back up what you're saying.
0: Political leaders (laughs) and public figures who have access to a platform have an influence
2: The deadly impact is that we start criminalising what are normal protest activities, non-violent activities and we start putting them within the purview of terrorism and extremism.
1: Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by the National Security College at the ANU and PolicyForum.net. In this podcast, we are kicking off a two-part series on the new extremism. Democratic societies are experiencing growing polarisation. They are becoming more adversarial. And the way we often interact with views opposing our own is becoming more extreme. And the extremists among us are becoming more activated to the point where we are seeing actual violent attacks becoming somewhat commonplace. Place. The most prominent element of the extremist landscape of late has been right-wing extremism. Indeed, in the United States in the last 12 months or so, it has been only right-wing extremists, for want of a better term, that have been successfully carrying out terror attacks. In the second part of this pod series, we're going to be talking to Nick Rasmussen. He is the former head of the National Counterterrorism Office in the United States. He is a return guest on Pod, along with another return guest, Jacinta Carroll, who was recently on secondment to the National Security College from the Australian Attorney General's Department, where she has spent years working on countering violent extremism. We'll be talking to Nick and Jacinta about the policy challenge and the options for government in dealing with this new extremism. But first, today, we will be talking to Dr. Christy Campion and Alex Mann about what the actual threat looks like, Christy is a lecturer of terrorism studies at Charleston University. She's a historian by training. Her research interests focus on the history of terrorism, the evolution and innovation of terrorism strategies, and terrorism in Australia. Alex Mann, he is a Sydney-based broadcast journalist with the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is essentially Australia's BBC for our international subscribers. He is an investigative journalist on their flagship podcast called background briefing if you haven't listened to that give it a crack it's a fantastic podcast in 2017 he was recognised as South Australia's journalist of the year and he's been a reporter on flagship shows like the ABC 730 program and so on in 2018, Alex, uh, he actually won an award for this, but he ran an investigation which uncovered a covert plot by Australia's alt right movement, for want of a better term, to join major national political parties and influence their policy agendas from within. So we'll be talking to Christy about the history of right-wing extremism in Australia and we will be talking to Alex about some of the current operations and activities by the right-wing extremist groups in Australia that he has experienced investigating. Let's hear from them right now. G'day, Christy. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Hey, how you going?
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Pleasure. Let's get started by understanding exactly what we're talking about here. Christy, can I ask, what exactly is right-wing extremism? What does it look like and how is it different than just, say, straight-up racism or some of the hate groups that we see around the place these days?
2: Thanks for the question. So racism does uh, play a part within within how we frame and define right-wing extremism, but it's not um, a central component. So it's important to be aware when we're talking about right-wing extremism is that we're not just talking about, uh, you know, a, a, an extension of mainstream right-wing politics. What we're talking about is essentially a uh, a classification that is profoundly anti-democratic. So we're talking about a belief system that fundamentally believes that democracy, that liberal democracy, liberal capitalist systems have failed. We're talking about groups that yearn for a authoritarian future. So they have a firm belief in order and hierarchy, and what comes with that, obviously as an extension, is a um, is a fundamental rejection of notions of equality. But where we can really hone in on these ideas is when it comes to exclusionary nationalism. So let's not con- uh, confuse this with patriotism, you know, which is you know a-, a love of country. Exclusionary nationalism is where you have people that define uh, an ethnic identity, which excludes others. So that's where you start seeing the racism and the xenophobia actually come into it. And they're essentially um, accompanying, ex- accompanying expressions of uh, cultural homogeneity.
1: So is is that the, we're hearing the term ethno nationalism around around a fair bit today? Is that what you're referring to there?
2: Uh, in many cases, it is ethno nationalism. However, it it can actually go further than that. So, ethno nationalism uh, refers to nationalism that's generally based on ethnic identity, so similar language, culture, and faith. With right-wing extremism, we don't just have them defining that ethnic identity, but also rejecting those who don't comply with that ethnic identity. And that's where we see racism uh, regarding immigrants uh, and uh, and uh, foreigners. Uh, and, and that's where we also see the invasion rhetoric come into it.
1: Yeah, right. So you, you mentioned that they're, they're uh, anti-democratic, they're more authoritarian. I'm going to make the assumption that a lot of these groups, when they're saying that there should be a strong authority power, they're actually referring to themselves that they should be the authority. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, right. What a surprise. Now, Australia has a pretty dubious history of racist policies, most prominent in that being the white Australia policy. Is right-wing extremism new to Australia or does it have a long history with us as well?
2: So right-wing extremism, you can pretty much trace back to the 1920s with the establishment of the New Guard, which was a uh, a right-wing paramilitary group that um, was concerned about the communist threat. Uh, and this was namely because they believed that communism was a threat to Christianity and Christian identity. But when we talk about the persistence of right-wing extremism in Australia, what we have to remember is that, um, that it's actually very common in settler nations. So I think it's easy to blame the White Australia policy, and it definitely had a, a, a significant um, part to play. But it's important to remember that other settler nations have also experienced this without that that official policy. But anyway, so... Um, a- Essentially, many of the groups did have goals and principles that aligned with the white Australia policy. So um, foremost among them, um, and the group that had direct connection with the New Guard that I just mentioned, was the Australia First Movement, who were concerned that there was a population problem in Australia, that there weren't enough white people, and they were worried that foreign powers would enforce non-white immigration. Now, they faded away pretty quickly, but they had direct connections with the League of Rights, one of Australia's most uh, longest-running right-wing organisations, the League of Rights um, was deeply anti-Semitic, very conspiratorial, uh, and again believed that uh, communism was uh, a threat to the so-called British way of life, and that's how they identified Australians at the time. League of Rights obviously had direct connection, direct contact with National Action, uh, which we know from the seventies and eighties, um, and uh, the Australian Nationalist Movement (ANM) uh, was a splinter. Of national action, now AM went on obviously to engage in a firebombing campaign in Perth against immigrant businesses, uh, and when they were suppressed by police, uh, what we had was um, subcultural networks still carrying that threat of right-wing extremism, even while most of those people were in jail. So they were the Women for Aryan Unity, and so they uh, connected with the Southern Cross Hemskins, with Blood and Honour, and with Crew Thirty Eight, and so. What we can see uh, across time is direct connections between these organizations, and you can uh, very much draw um, a thread between you know the ideas of the new Guard the ideas of AFM through to the ideas of the women of Aryan Unity and the Australian nationalist movement and that actually also feeds into some of the ideas that we see today uh, with the with the rise of um, some of the contemporary groups um, in 2009 and obviously their revitalization after 2014 in the Lindt Café Siege. One of the most recent ones of those, obviously, um, is the new incarnation of uh, the New Guard.
0: Yeah, which is something that I had a pretty close <laughs> look at in some of the stories we did. Yeah, um,
1: so I'm, I'm, gonna, we're going to jump to that and we're going to get your first-hand experiences with the New Guard. Before we do that, Christy, can I just ask you, is there any major ideological difference or uh, difference in the way that they operate from the earlier right-wing groups to what we see today, or is it essentially a straight-line evolution?
2: Uh, I I wouldn't say it was an entirely straight-line. Ideologically, there has been some evolution. Uh, There has been some areas of change. So, for example, uh, when we talk about um, ethno-nationalism, we're also talking about ethnocentrism, which is essentially the, the definition and um, the creation of a cultural construct which is deemed to be a threat or an enemy. Uh, and so that's where we can see the clearest evolution and into how they define the, the other and how they define threat. And so um, generally that ties in with concepts of, of crisis. So in the earlier days, obviously, the crisis was um, the great communist threat. So they modelled themselves uh, against that, but also against uh, what they believed to be the Zionist occupation government, also known as Zog. Uh, That changed uh, in the 80s, obviously, with the dismantlement of the White Australia policy and the culmination of the Vietnam War. So this saw an influx of uh, Vietnamese immigrants and uh, asylum seekers from Vietnam. Uh, So the groups in that period modelled themselves against primarily Asian immigration. So today, Again, uh, what we're seeing is they've defined the current threat as being uh, jihadism, but not just jihadism. It's it's actually applied... uh, wholesale to the entire Muslim community. So it's not a, a counter-jihad, as some people would suggest. It's actually defining Muslim peoples in Australia as being fundamentally uh, incompatible with the white Australian way of life. And and so that's obviously where the racism comes into it as well. Um, at the same time, and this is something that I know that uh, Alex can talk on, uh, what we also see is um, uh, change in strategy, but also the replication of strategy. Uh, and so, for example, the, the recent uh, infiltration of the uh, Young Nationals by the Lat Society, which was Alex's uh, story, uh, was uh, actually um, formulated back in the 1960s by um, the League of Rights, who basically said, look, in order to to seize power, we need to um, infiltrate political parties, we need to um, do covert and elite penetration, we need to change their fundamental values and make them in line with ours, and we need to, uh, to pressure uh, and use influence against ministers in order to have our aims realised.
1: Yeah. So, Alex, you're a journalist. You've done a lot of investigative journalism on many different issues. But one of the things that you've worked on recently that has really hit the headlines in a big way and that has really changed part of the Australian political landscape is your work into looking at the the current right-wing groups operating in Australia today. Can you give us before we dig into their their strategies and and your experiences, can you just give me a bit of a background how you landed into doing an investigation like that? <sighs>
0: Yeah, I guess like a lot of investigations, you sort of, um, you know, end up deep in them a little by accident. I started looking at a story around um, doxing when a colleague of mine was um, had his personal contact details published online um, and, uh, you know, and a lot of people came after him in a really aggressive way. Um, that story didn't kind of land at the time. But as a result of trying to track down the people who had published his details, um i came across this um plot if you will uh, which had actually been in action by that stage for about 10 months and it was this group of um young men who were um at that stage I didn't really know about their connection to the lad society uh but a group of young men who were talking online about joining the new south wales young nationals and kind of changing their policy agenda from within and um it was sort of like that was the first one that was in October last year and then as with a lot of investigations you know once you start you start to see the horizons kind of open up before you and there's actually a million stories to uncover and um, it's at a time as well where Fraser Anning was had one eye on the upcoming federal election. There was a lot of energy and enthusiasm in the movement as a result of that. And I think a lot of people in the LAD society and, and just sort of more broadly on the um, Australian far right saw Anning as a real um, – as an opportunity. Someone they could get behind who would sort of bring into the mainstream views that – until he got there had often been thought of as taboo.
1: So just just for our international listeners, Fraser Ranning was an Australian, well, I use the term politician quite loosely. The way he entered the Australian Senate was that uh, one of the, our sitting senators was found to have dual nationality or dual citizenship, which is actually illegal under the Australian Constitution. So he had to remove himself from the Senate and under Australia's quite quirky rules in in the Senate, in the upper house, that seat belongs to the party rather than to the electorate or the person. So once someone's removed, the party that they come from is able to replace them in the Senate. That's right, isn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, 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 he was uh, – a. it's the Stephen Bradbury of the um, Stephen approaches, Bradbury. which you yeah, don't, don't yeah. explain. <laughs> uh,
1: and, and so – once this uh, this politician from Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party had to remove himself from the Senate, Fraser Anning, who was the next person on the ticket for that party, was put into vote, and he had something like under twenty votes. The guy was representing the state of Queensland, which has millions of people, and he literally had something like seventeen votes, and he ended up in the Senate representing Queensland. And as soon as he got into the seat, he then quit. The One Nation Party, so he didn't have to give that seat back up again when uh, the previous politician renounced his uh, dual citizenship, and he became a an independent senator in the Australian Senate with 17 votes to his name. And he was a very far right wing operator who literally used the term final solution in his maiden speech to parliament. So that gives you a bit of an idea. When we mention Fraser Anning, you're going to know what kind of an insurgent he was in Australian politics and the character that he brought with himself. Please carry on, Alex.
0: Yeah, no worries. Um, And so there were, as I sort of started digging around, there was a Fraser Anning supporters group. And in it, users would share some of the most heinous um, you know, shit posts, awful, offensive, um, racist, uh, homophobic uh, internet memes. And there was a lot of joking and that sort of stuff in the Fraser Anning supporters group. But if you dug in a little bit deeper, there were some closed groups that had a lot of overlap with the Fraser Anning supporters group. And I came across a group called the New Guard. And the New Guard was sort of a, um, a rebirth of this group uh, fascist group from the 30s, um, you know, manifested in this Facebook group. And it was inside the New Guard where I was able to observe um, essentially what a lot of these guys were planning. They were a lot more open because they thought this was a a closed group. I mean, it was a closed group, but it was one that I had um, visibility over. Does that
1: point to their naivety and maybe a bit of a naive approach to what they were doing that no one would be watching?
0: I think that is changing. And that there were smaller closed Facebook groups that, to begin with, a lot of these users thought they were, i guess in control of, and mm. that they knew who was there and how they'd got there. But you know, as with any group, the more people you invite, and the quicker they kind of they expand, it gets harder to control who's there and and the vetting process was pretty loose mm. and so. I think, um, yeah, in a sense it was naive and I think in another sense, um, you know, the New Guard and what they were saying in there was one part of our investigation. It kind of gave us a hint that the people who were in the New South Wales Young Nationals and who the people in the New South Wales Young Nationals had concerns about were also, some of whom were also in this group and so then we kind of thought, okay, well, there's that's interesting, let's look elsewhere. And so that involved- Just just for
1: our uh, international listeners as well, the the Young Nationals, the National Party is a major Australian political party that basically represents uh, rural Australia. We have basically a two-party system where we have the Labor Party, which are our progressive party, and we also have the Liberal National Coalition who have spent the most years in government out of any Australian political party. So they're a major, significant, mainstream element of the Australian political landscape. And the Young Nationals that Alex is referring to is their their youth political system. And that was, in, that was what was being infiltrated by That's these right.
0: groups. And the interesting thing about the New South Wales young nationals is that in the time prior to the arrival of these sort of right-wing operatives, um, it had been a remarkably progressive political unit. I mean, those guys were... Um, In support of an emissions trading scheme, they were in support of same-sex marriage. They were kind of actually at odds with the national. Yeah, it's very (laughs)
1: unnational-like
0: with the the national National Party. So with the federal, with their federal counterpart, they were almost um, they were actually at odds with them on a lot of um, social policy and and climate policy. And so to have this group of people kind of come in at this uh, general meeting, um, and what they were doing was putting forward. New motions on policy issues that were really kind of like the touchstone issues of the alt right. Things like, um, you know, white genocide of um, you know of South African farmers. Um, they were talking about you know migration from quote culturally compatible nations, um, which is sort of a return to the white Australia policy that we talked about a little before. Um, and so that was what they were doing. They were trying to get in there and then move the policy agenda. In their direction, um, and so that was that was sort of the first one we did. I then kind of ended up picking up this doxing story. We did that, and that sort of took me deep into this world of um, far right internet trolls. And then, um, and then Christchurch happened, and through, um, you know, I was able to gain access to an entire database of comments and posts from the, by this stage, deleted United Patriots Front Facebook page, which was sort of one of the leading um, far-right street action groups in Australia throughout 2016, um, born out of an anti-Islam movement, sort of a, that had kind of itself born out of a an anti-mosque movement. And in these comments, we were able to see how Tarrant was actually himself a part of that group, was engaged with it and had shown appreciation for the activities and advocacy of the group's most senior members, some of whom have gone on to great notoriety, including a a guy called Blair Cottrell and another um, called Tom Sewell. Uh, um, yeah, and so following that story, I was already at that stage looking at some of the connections between Fraser Anning's staff members and some of those earlier groups that I'd been looking at. And the concrete and the connections were concrete. Uh, members of Fraser Anning's staff were also members of this um, you know group called the New Guard, which you know defined itself as a fascist Facebook group. Uh, and, and so we were able to demonstrate that there were a group of people who had previously tried to infiltrate political parties who at this stage were now working in a federal senator's office, who were members of a series of um, other far-right Facebook pages, and who had at various points explicitly said that they um, were interested in using Anning and, and um, shifting the national conversation to the right.
1: So when you're uh, doing investigations, whether that's as an academic or a journalist, when you're doing investigations into groups like this that are prone to violence, that actually preach violence sometimes, how do you protect yourself from becoming targets of these groups yourself?
0: Uh, It's not easy. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, it's... One thing that these investigations have taught me is just how porous your own personal security is and... um... If someone wants to find you, they can they and they will you know if they really, really want to, then there's not really much you can do about it and so I think it's just you know part luck and part removing the low hanging fruit, so you know, look at me on the electoral roll, I'm not there, yeah, right, you know that was the first one, yep, yep,
2: I think it's also worth mentioning that um the reason why uh the media um academia and to an extent uh, police are so frequently discussed and targeted within extreme right um, manifestos is because they're actually challenging the monopoly of truth that these groups believe they hold. So if you are saying, well, actually, you know, what you're saying is incorrect because of A, B and C, the natural consequence of that is that they're going to see you as a threat and they are going to target you in one way or another. Um
1: that, that's uh, that authoritarian streak again, absolutely, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely it is, yes.
1: So you you just mentioned the manifestos and um, some of these manifestos have been turning up on in the darker corners of the internet. Um it's difficult to argue that President Trump's words have not influenced uh, racist and right-wing extremists in the US, uh, but have we seen any evidence of political rhetoric in Australia from Australian political leaders influencing right-wing extremism in Australia?
2: Well, uh, the general theory at the moment is that uh, in the the 90s and, and certainly within the last few years that um, the extreme right have found a voice in the politics of Pauline Hanson, and Hansonism is one of uh, is a very heavily researched topic uh, about how she she mobilised um, the right by essentially echoing um, ideas about uh, white ethnic identity, uh, ideas about um, uh, well, essentially xenophobic ideas. So the othering of um, of particularly Asian immigrants. Uh, and also, she championed other other sort of tropes of like the Aussie battler and the the traditional um, the traditional family with a male breadwinner and, and that sort of thing, as contradictory as it seems. Um, but um, in saying that, it's very rare that uh, there is explicit reference in the manifestos to uh, leaders who are part of the political democratic process. And the reason why that's rare is because they, at their most extreme, have fundamentally disengaged with the democratic process. Uh, So they don't tend to find much representation in people who are part of it. Obviously, uh, as Alex said earlier, Fraser Enning really, really challenged that because they saw him almost as their guy on the inside. Uh, And that goes back to what you were saying as well about uh, how many votes it took to get him into the Senate.
1: Alex, do you have any opinions on how Australian politics influences how some of these groups work?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for one, you had a you had a group called the Fraser Anning Supporters Group. Um, it's the founders of that group were the same people who founded the New Guard Facebook page, in which people were discussing how they were going to build whites-only enclaves and try to infiltrate mainstream political parties. There was a distinct overlap between the support for Fraser Anning and the Sort of plots that we uncovered to subvert a democratic process. So there's definitely um, an overlap there. You know, for example, one of the leaders of the Ladd Society, a far right men's group that was founded by Cottrell and um, another guy, Tom Sewell. Um, you know, one of those guys online said you know, as a bit of a call out to his to the members of the Lad Society supporters group, another Facebook page that we had visibility over. Um, and they said, uh, you know, we've got a shill for this guy, for Fraser Anning. So, you know, Fraser Anning's our guy in 4chan parlance, and it is in our interests to promote him. And I think this goes to this idea that political leaders and public figures who have access to a platform have an influence over the broader debate in a country. And I think the reason why somebody like Fraser Anning is useful and why it's also useful for these movements to promote characters like Fraser Anning is that he says things that no one else will say. And it goes back to this favourite philosophy of the far right, this idea of what's called the Overton Window, which is essentially a theory that says there are boundaries at the left end and at the right end about what is acceptable to say in public. But that if you have somebody like Fraser Anning using the words like final solution in a speech, something he says was coincidental rather than um, premeditated or any reference to the Holocaust – if he says those sorts of things in public that no one else is going to say, well, that's way out there. And we're not saying like let's everybody start using the words final solution. But when he says that, it shifts that Overton window, that window of what's acceptable, towards comments like that, to the right. And so having someone like Anning or whether you know Trump is a perfect example, uh saying things that no one else will say, that's in their interest because it normalizes the stuff on the fringes. Yeah, um,
1: I, I would suggest that we actually saw uh, an element of that in Australian politics, where we saw Andrew Hastie, uh, a Liberal backbencher, putting forward an opinion piece in the, in the newspaper, where he obliquely compared the rising China to the rising Nazi Germany. Now, obviously, that is a pretty intense thing to say, and he wasn't he wasn't comparing them to Nazis. He was saying it's it's China's rise is similar to the rise of Germany. But I think that he deliberately drew in that oblique Nazi reference for exactly that, to uh, move it as far right as he possibly could to give people space to come in behind him, maybe not start comparing him to the Nazis. But it's exactly the same thing. And we see politicians around the world, as you said, Trump does it in the US as well, uh, making these extreme remarks that they know that will create a whole lot of argument and discussion, but they've just shifted the whole conversation. So we've been, uh, mentioning the internet a number of times here and, and websites, we have seen uh, the shooters such as the recent one in El Paso and the Christchurch shooter, I tend not to use their names because I'd rather see these people uh, fade into obscurity over time. These attackers have posted their personal manifestos online. Firstly, why are they posting these documents in public? And more broadly speaking, how has the internet influenced the right-wing extremist landscape and how they operate?
2: When we see terrorists publish uh, manifestos online or elsewhere, uh, what we're essentially seeing is a fundamental terrorist strategy known as propaganda of the deed. Now, propaganda of the deed, uh, which sort of came about in the 18th century, developed because uh, terrorists... uh, well, by nature of their extremist ideology, don't occupy a space on the mainstream, which means that they really need to work to get people engaged with, with the message that they're trying to sell. Now, obviously, back in the 18th century, uh, liter- literacy levels weren't very high. And so the best way to do this was through provocative acts, generally violent acts.
1: Such as assassinating the Archduke yeah, Ferdinand. Yeah, such as
2: uh, Ferdinand, such as killing uh, the Tsar of Russia. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, – The media was still quite heavily controlled uh, back in those days, which means that uh, by acts of violence, they could really um, circumvent any censorship process. They could avoid being um, sort of uh, obscured or or hidden by the state, Uh, and so it Uh, terrorist violence uh, as propaganda by the deed was a way of getting uh, that manifesto essentially out into the public um, in as uh, provocative a manner as possible. Now, that hasn't changed uh, since the 18th century. And what we see is terrorists increasingly using uh, online systems to, to disseminate their message. And it's definitely what we saw Um, with Christchurch, but we also saw it with Breivik. So before Anders Breivik launched his attack in 2011, um, as as no doubt uh, everyone knows, he uh, launched an attack in Oslo and on the island of Utoya where he systematically executed 69 uh, young people who were part of a left-wing summer camp. So what he actually did was he had a Facebook group and from that Facebook group he harvested uh, thousands of emails and he uh, basically transmitted that manifesto off to all those people before he went and in, in, in his attack. So since then, obviously, w- we saw um, Tarrant uh, distributing his on 8chan. But realistically, the problem itself isn't that they're being posted online. It's that they're being shared online after that initial post. And that's probably something that Alex can talk to quite a lot.
0: Yeah. So interestingly, you find that... Um a lot of the literature shared in these groups is is common to some of the most extreme far right groups around the world. So, a lot of the guys in the in the New Guard were talking about sharing a book called Siege by James Mason, and um, uh, which is essentially this sort of um, almost a, a terrorist doctrine, which has also been adopted by groups in the US, which are the most sort of extreme. Neo-Nazi, um, violent sort of groups called Atomwaffen. Uh, there's a group in Australia that sort of models itself off Atomwaffen, which has been less active in recent times, but you know, 12 months ago was hosting bush walks and people dressing up in army fatigues and talking about clean living and anti-Semitism, um, and they called themselves um, Antipodean Resistance. So groups like that overlap heavily and they all share a lot of the same literature. They had Anders Breivik's uh, manifesto. They were talking about sharing siege. They're talking about sharing a bunch of other sort of fascist literature, Oswald mostly among other authors. Um, And so there's a real kind of common set of touchstone texts. And the words in particularly when you start looking down into the shooter's manifestos are just not at all unusual like if you're in this world and you're watching what everybody's saying online if you're watching what people talk about on 8chan it's super ironic it's shitposting it allows this sort of thin veneer where they can say oh, that no, was all just a joke you know like if you're offended then you just don't get it but the thing is it's a radicalization technique and a tool you know it's a way to get people in it allows a degree of plausible deniability um but when you look at uh, you know the Christchurch shooters manifesto it's full of references to this stuff it's speaking to that community in that language. You can't pretend that this stuff is just shit posting when somebody goes out and shoots 50 people and then fills their justification for doing it with that exact same language.
1: Yes I'm, I'm going to come back to how we look at freedom of speech and discussions. But before I do, I just want to touch on the point that you're saying, that these people are, are looking at, say, uh, like the Christchurch shooter is looking at the 2011 Norway attack. He's looking at his manifesto feeding off that. And the El Paso shooter has been doing similar things. Uh, I believe the chap that attacked the Pittsburgh mosque also had some of those elements in in his uh, – did he have a manifesto?
0: No, he had a he, – he, So the the Pittsburgh shooter had a post on Gab that he put in there. Right, which was Screw Your Optics. Screw Your Optics, I'm going in. That was his. Yeah, right. Which you'd be interested to know. One of the guys that we were looking at who worked in Fraser Anning's office made a meme with the words, Screw Your Optics, I'm going in, which he posted – to a U.S. forum within twenty-four hours of the Pittsburgh shooter, oh. as a joke, just to rile up the the family members and the members of the community that were.
1: Um, so yeah, the the, the Pittsburgh shooter, uh, he he had uh, he showed his influences of these previous shooters that had gone before him. So what we're essentially talking about is. Is it a nascent global community? And how has that affected? Like traditionally, I'm expecting that these kind of groups were more nationalistic in their approach. Is, are we seeing some kind of evolution towards more of an ethnic approach rather than a nationalistic approach? And is this, is this a result of digital communications? How, why is this coming about?
2: I would not probably simplistic to say it, but um, the slogan of Stormfront is White Pride Worldwide. Uh, And that is a very easy way to capture the perspective of of these movements. So, uh, you know, even back in sort of, you know, earlier decades, even back in the 30s, even back in um, 40s, 50s, 60s, what we see is uh, particularly Australian right-wing extremists having and fostering engagement with international counterparts. Now, the logical reason for why we're able to track these transnational uh, networks within the right-wing extremist movement uh, is because they believe that they're facing an existential threat. So they're looking for allies. They're also looking for validation.
1: Um, Just just to pick up on that, there's always this theme that there's this crisis, they're facing an existential threat. Funnily, these are usually the people that call others snowflakes where they're the ones that seem to be very scared of, of things. Why is there this idea in all these conspiracies that there is this massive threat when there doesn't seem to be any evidence to actually back it up?
2: Well, I mean, when you're already disestablishment and you're already pretty conspiratorial, you don't really need much evidence to back up what you're saying. And uh, for some of them, they're very good at uh, taking evidence that's not substantiated and claiming it is fact. Uh, so we saw that with the Christchurch Manifesto and the endless Wikipedia links. Now, obviously, your first year's university student can tell you how reliable Wikipedia mm-hmm. is. Um, but essentially, they use this uh, counterfactual argument, and they actually make it dangerously subversive in that when you, uh, you know, quote-unquote, wake up to it, you've been red-pilled. You know, you've chosen the red pill. Suddenly, you're part of the in-group. You know the secret. You're part of, you know, you know what, what the rest of the world order is about, and that provides quite a quite a interesting starting point for someone that's then you know moving into the ideological uh, worldview, someone who's starting to access those those manifestos that Alex was talking about, someone that's starting to access the sites where these sources are often collated and provided for free you know there are a number of online discussion boards that will basically You know, it's like your right-wing extremist starter pack. They have all the manifestos there that that are required to really start that radicalization process. But it's important to note they don't see it as a radicalization process. They see it as waking up to the truth.
1: Right. So my takeaway from this is that these people have very deep biases in them, and that is to be drama
2: queens. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way of putting it. Uh, With what we've seen recently with uh, right-wing extremists referencing each other in their manifestos, what I think we might be seeing here is what – Another expert, Gerald Post, uh, who's a, a terrorist psychologist, has identified as um, hero worshippers and then celebrity seekers. So people um, you know, are, are beginning to subscribe to the worldview. They're beginning to feel that there's this existential threat against them, that there's this great big conspiracy and that the entire world order is working to erase them and their ethnic identity. And then people like the Christchurch attacker and uh, and obviously the the Oslo terrorist, they attain uh, almost a quasi transcendental uh, transcendental status in these communities. So, you know that they're called um, saints, and what that means is I think that what we're seeing is that other people are going, I want to be part of that too. I want to be part of that. That status group within the right wing extremist movement—it's—it's
1: it's eerily similar to what you see in some of the jihadi movements and some of the the suicide bombers and so on. How they are referred to as martyrs and as um, as role models for those emerging—are there any similarities like that between the jihadi movement and the right wing movement?
2: Look, when it comes to dogmatic uh, <coughs> worldviews, there is always going to be similarities. <laughs> extremist, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of. Uh, in the definition. The veneration of martyrs in a movement isn't uncommon. So it's actually not just a jihadist thing. It's not just a right-wing thing. It's also a left-wing thing. So particularly during the wave of new left terrorism in the 60s, 70s and 80s, there was a terrorist group known as the Red Army Faction. Whenever they lost a member, they would then use that person's name and incorporate it in uh, in an exercise. So for example, when Ulrike Meinhof committed suicide in prison... The Red Army faction who was still free on the outside created the Ulrike Meinhof Commando Group. And so that veneration of, of martyrs or soldiers or whatever the, whatever, you know, language they're using is actually uh, a very common marketing technique within uh, terrorist movements.
1: Right. And you've just mentioned that there is a strong history of left-wing terrorism, you know, Brigado Rouge, Baden-Meinhof, uh, even uh, Weathermen Underground in the US in, in the 60s and so on. But it's not even that long ago. FARC in Colombia are also a very strong left-wing insurgency group that uses terrorist tactics. Now, in the 9-11 era, everyone was very, very focused on the uh, jihadi threat. And Christy, as you're aware, these right-wing groups have always existed and have always been at least prone to, to a violent approach. And no one seemed to be looking at this threat seriously or taking the threat seriously until we had the Christchurch attack. Are we making a similar mistake with some left-wing groups? Uh, how, how do we see uh, – is the left-wing rad- radicalizing as a response to the radical right? Where, where are we at on the left-wing threat if there even is one?
2: Uh, very quickly, I just want to um, touch base on something that you, uh, you just mentioned. Um, so uh, right-wing extremism is cyclical. So it surges, it recedes, but it never disappears. Now, before 9-11, the most significant right-wing terrorist attack was Timothy McVeigh's um, bombing of the Oklahoma City Building. Now, when that happened, all eyes were focused on right-wing extremism, and it would have stayed that way if it weren't for 9 9-11. You know, so 9-11 was actually a uh, key event that triggered that shift in perspective. And this is what we see with Christchurch as well. When, when you have a major attack, it shifts the perspective. And I think that, it, you know, um, looking forward and, and thinking about um, future-proofing ourselves against terrorism, we, we always have to consider, okay, not just what is a threat now, but what is a likely threat in the future. Now, when it comes to left-wing extremism and terrorism, its heyday was very much... Um, within what we call the wave of new left terrorism um, 60s 70s and 80s as i mentioned earlier now the uniting factor across left wing terrorism internationally was the formation of what we call the SDS the students for democratic society now they were not a terrorist movement they weren't even an extremist movement they were just a student movement uh, and and everything that goes with that now uh, most Western nations had an SDS and what grew out of the SDS were various extremist groups. So, so as you mentioned, in the US, that was the weather underground um, and the Symbionese Liberation Army. In Germany, the Red Army Faction. So in Australia, we didn't see uh, anywhere near the same level uh, of left-wing terrorism throughout that time as what, uh, what other Western nations did. So between 1969 and 1972, we had about 17 major acts of uh, vandalism, normally targeting symbols of war uh, or American imperialism. We had about 15 acts of property damage. Um, There were about eight uh, uses of Molotovs or incendiary devices. We had two attempted bombings and um, one or two attempted efforts to create and use war gas, which essentially was just tear gas. (laughs) And it wasn't very successful, I should point out. Um, Now- That was, without any threat to life, that was not lethal violence. And that is not the sort of violence that we would normally categorise as terrorism. So recently in Australia, obviously, we've had the vegan protesters. We've had various uh, anti-fascist groups and elements uh, counter-protesting extreme right rallies. And I think it's really important that we contextualise this activity appropriately. So I think there may be attempts within the political discourse to create some sort of moral equivalency, you know, to, to say, well, yes, right-wing extremism is a problem, but so is left-wing extremism.
1: Are you, ask, are you saying people are uh, making some kind of equivalence between right-wing extremists who actively promote violence and vegans? Well, it, it looks
2: that way wow. in, in some of the reports. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> well, a of, that's
0: a hell of a bow. <laughs> you know, at one point, you know, post uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, the Trump famously said... There are bad people on both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, this is uh, the kind of equivalence that is, that is drawn at a political level between these two groups.
2: And, and I think the deadly impact that that can have on Australian society is that we start criminalising what are normal protest activities, non-violent activities, and we start putting them within the purview of terrorism and extremism.
1: Yeah, and, and we see that happening in other authoritarian countries as we speak in Hong Kong, whilst there are some violent riots happening on the street, a violent riot in itself does not qualify, in my definition, of terrorism anyway. Yet the whole protest movement in Hong Kong has now been labelled by Beijing as bordering on terrorism. So it's 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 simply a, a, the weaponising of a definition.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. And you, you often see the term terrorism or, or extremism become uh, politicised. And in doing so, it becomes pejorative, and in, in which point you might as well not use it at all because you're not being accurate.
1: Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, so getting back to what we were talking about before in the online discussions, and how there's these large groups like Stormfront had hundreds of thousands of members, if I remember correctly, yet. These aren't hundreds of thousands of people going out and committing violence in the street. These are people that have fairly extreme views, views that I find abhorrent, but they're allowed to have these views. In in, in Australia, at least, we have... we You can think what you like. You can, to a large degree, say what you like because we have freedom of speech, and you can collect with other people who have similar views because we have freedom of association. How do we spot the point where these extreme views translate into actual action violent action how do we how do we manage this situation where we allow people to have these extreme views that actually promote violence without letting them commit violent acts and keeping our freedoms in the society and as an extension on that do social media platforms have any responsibility in this space to manage these risks
0: well social media companies have been trying to Respond to the way that their platforms have been subverted as effectively marshalling tools for um, right-wing extremism. How, how
1: genuine have these
0: responses been? Well, they've kicked a lot of these groups off Facebook. Twitter has done the same. You go and try and find the accounts that are linked to Adam Waffen, the accounts that are linked to Antipodean Resistance on Twitter. They've all been deleted. The tweets have been deleted. Um, a lot of the groups that I was looking at in the stories um, from last year and the beginning of this year, um, those Facebook pages don't exist anymore. The Proud Boys have been kicked off Facebook. Um, so deplatforming has diminished the visibility of these groups and the kind of I guess the first entry point for somebody who's maybe kicking around on Facebook, likes the odd post and then suddenly they're a member of the new guard and they're exposed to some of the most extreme material that's around. So I think in that sense, social media companies have realized that they don't want to be associated with this stuff. So they're, they're moving to, in a sense, police what people say on those platforms. That, in in a sense, is an in, um, an infringement on this implied right of freedom of speech on another level it's about you know um taking a moral position on on you know on what your company stands for
1: that's right i mean like you, you can have free speech and everything but these these are private companies such as twitter and youtube and facebook they have their own terms of agreement and if you don't fit into their standards them kicking you off their platform isn't really a restriction of free speech they're saying if you want to work in our private space you've got to comply to our rules is yeah. that a, is that the correct yeah no, that's no,
0: i think that's what they that's what they're doing for sure and i think you know there's there's a sense that okay if you kick these these guys off facebook then they're going to go to gab and if you kick them off gab then they're going to go to 8chan and if you get rid of 8chan then what next well you know the most committed among any of these social movements will always find an alternative i think the importance and the effectiveness of Platforming actually is not for those guys. It's actually for um, to sort of stop the spread, if you will. It sort of it, it does make it harder to reduce their
1: ability it. to recruit people. I'm assuming you're saying,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Kicking these groups off Facebook and Twitter, etc., is a really good thing to put a stop to some of the easiest forms of recruiting. But it also makes them much harder to watch. And so, as an investigative journalist, I very much enjoyed the fact that they were organizing on Facebook and Twitter because I could see who they were, I could see what they were doing, and what their plans were. And now they're moving from those, I guess, less policed spaces and groups to invite only chat forums like Discord, like WhatsApp, like Telegram. It's much harder to get access-, access to those for journalists as well as law enforcement. And I think there is a much more serious vetting process before you actually are given access to those spaces. So the challenge for law enforcement now is, I think, much harder. But on a general kind of measure of how impactful these movements are going to be into the future, reducing access to group, to platforms like Facebook and Twitter is going to be really helpful.
1: Yeah. Christy, do, do you have any thoughts on this tension between freedom of speech, freedom of association, and also the the mobilisation of extreme groups uh, that translates into real-life threats?
2: Well, first of all, I, um, I second everything that, that Alex just said. I think he said it very well. The thing is, is that these groups use the freedom of speech argument as a deflection. Uh, they use uh, the freedom of association as a deflection. And when we suppress those activities what it does is it feeds into their existing narrative and they're able to actually take positive approaches to countering it and exploit it virtually immediately. So they say, oh, okay, well, uh, I've been kicked off Facebook. I've been deplatformed. But the left wing is still able to talk. And that feeds into conspiracy that the left wing are, are part of this, this global move to destroy um, destroy their ethnic identity or, or their race, whatever the case may be.
1: Hence um, me going back to the whole drama queen. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so they're very good at co-opting whatever effort is made. And they're very good at shifting the conversation. Now, the thing is, is that, yes, um, to an extent, we do have freedom of speech, but we don't have uh, freedom to, uh, to uh, advocate violence against other members of our own community. And I think this is somewhere where politicians really need to assert um, a more um, substantial and value-based leadership. We need people out there that are saying, actually, this is what the Australian values are in regards to this. You know, it is not okay to say A, B and C because our country is composed of, you know, varying cultures, varying ethnicities, and that's what makes us strong.
1: And and that's certainly something that we're going to follow up in the second part of this podcast with Jacintra and Nick on what the policy community needs to be doing to manage these, these risks and challenges. So I want to wrap up this discussion with a question uh, mostly for you, Christy. Can't hear your thoughts on them as well, Alex. But we hear, Alex, from your work, we've been looking at the Ladd Society and the every name that we've brought up, every shooter and uh, all of these historical figures – have all been men? Yet I heard Christy you mention a group called the Women for Aryan Unity. Now I came into this discussion thinking that this whole right wing extremist space was very much a male dominated space. Is there a role for women here? is, is there is there equality in the right wing extremist movement? What what is the women's role here?
2: Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't call it equality per se, <laughs> but there is definitely a, a role for women in the movement, and it's important to point out that. Stereotyping right-wing extremism as white, young, angry men who are unemployed, frankly, is not supported by data. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a number of women involved in the movements, and there are a number of women that create their own movements, um, and they see themselves as supplementary. Now, It's important to to point out here- Sorry,
1: the women themselves see themselves as supplementary.
2: Yes. So um, the Women for Aryan Unity, who you just mentioned, um, they, uh, over the years, have done a fundraising drive known as um, Support a Brother. And as part of that drive, they basically canvas for donations and they use that money uh, and they send it to incarcerated right-wing terrorists in the U.S., So they provide a a significant supporting role. But it's also important to look at how women are considered in the movement. Now, when we talk about right-wing extremist beliefs, particularly in regards to gender roles and and sexuality as well, uh, what we're talking about here is a value set that is um, very conservative. And so the women are generally considered, um, you know, in some cases, yes, um, keepers of the hearth. But on the other side of it, they can also be active in the groups. Um, they they uh, are engaged with the groups. You know, um, so for example, before and Resistance's website was taken down, we saw a lot of women in the photos there on their bushwork. So they're actually engaging with the ideology uh, and believing in it. But the more dangerous element regarding women in the movement is the fact that women form the premise for action. Women are why the men turn to violence. Now, the reason for that, um, and this is what we saw it most- It sounds very domestic abuse. <laughs> oh, no, <go> sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to give that, that uh, implication. But So, for example, with the, uh, with the Christchurch Manifesto, we have the terrorist claiming that his trigger was the death of Abba Akerlund, who was killed in a jihadist attack in Stockholm. And so he says, well, I'm, I'm avenging um, the death of this white woman. Now, the, women why, the reason why women are- so, the- Sorry, he
1: avenged the, a woman on the other side of the planet by killing a bunch of peaceful people in Christchurch.
2: Yes, that was his reasoning. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, got it. Sorry, yeah. go on. <laughs> now, the, the, the real uh, issue is is that because women are positioned as being both the keeper of white heritage, white values, the white home, they are therefore also the future- of the white race to these people, um, to people that s- subscribe to this belief system, so when they act out of violence, it's often linked to well, we have to defend our women, and we saw this particularly. How yeah, I know, right? We saw this particularly with the soldiers of Odin, um, who were um, European groups initially, and then we also had a uh, an element in Australia as well, where you know we have to act in the defence of, of the white women because, and this goes back to David Lane and the fourteen words that uh, you know. We Women are essentially the future of the white race, um, not in the sense of um, political empowerment, but in the sense of continuity of genetics. Yeah,
1: you guys are making the babies. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: well, pretty much, yeah. But also, you know, supporting the movement, fundraising, yeah, um, right. a- and keeping those conservative family values in place, that the whole nuclear family thing.
0: Yeah, which, I mean, certainly in some of the research that I was doing, particularly around the New South Wales Young Nationals and the white supremacists that infiltrated that group. There were women among, among those um, operatives, if you will. There was one young woman who had a National Socialists Women Facebook page. Um, it was deleted by the time I started really kind of digging around. But then when I started looking at other stories related to this on Discord, a gaming platform, a gaming sort of chat forum, I found Ms. Nat Socialist who was the same woman who was elected onto the New South Wales Young Nationals executive, talking about how she and her partner were going to have Nazi cupcakes at uh, their the, wedding.
1: Weren't they so cute, that couple? I, I there, there was a whole spread on them on, on the ABC website as well, where they softly denounced their views, but it really sounded like, oh shit, we've been found out. Better, better pretend that we're denouncing our views. It wasn't overly convincing.
0: Yeah, look, I mean- that's that's what they that was, you know, they had questions put to them and that's what they said in response. But yeah, the the stuff that particularly Lisa Sanford had said on Discord very much fits into everything that Christy was saying. You know, this is a very traditional view of women's roles in the family and in the movement too. You know, this is about supporting the men and you know, she was she felt very I think Upset for the erosion of masculine authority in the household.
2: They, okay. they often oppose feminism for that same reason, yes. because it's it's a it's a to quote women for Aryan unity. It's emasculated men and uh, made women more masculine, and so it also ties into the erosion of traditional gen, uh, gender roles and that sort of thing as well.
1: Alex Christie, this has been a great conversation. Thanks very much for coming on the National Security Podcast. Thanks Thank for having you. me. And a big thank you to Alex and Christy for coming on the show and discussing right-wing extremism and political extremism altogether. And we're really keen to hear some of your thoughts on these issues. You can hit us up on Twitter at NatSecPod or at Apps Policy Forum. You can hit us up on our Facebook group, which is called Policy Forum Pod. Or you can just drop us an email to podcast at policyforum.net. We can air some of your views in the coming pod with Nick Rasmussen and Jacinta Carroll. We can have a discussion on Twitter, or you can just let us know what you think. So hit us up, and whilst you're there, we'd obviously love a five-star rating or any feedback on the pod whatsoever. We look forward to speaking to you soon in the second of this series on political extremism and right-wing extremism. Until then, stay safe.